0: What a blessing! I need to start, I think, by uh, talking about the title of my my sermon. When all my sermon, when all else fails, read the instructions. Right? That's uh, I don't know if any have any of you ever heard that expression before. It's a expression my dad was quite fond of, and I was reminded of it just recently. We've been updating and adding some sound equipment and changes things around. You, I'm sure, have noticed, but. Um, uh, I did, I think, two weeks. I brought the board in, brought the board in again. I think it was after the second week that I finally went and downloaded the PDF manual and read it and looked at it and gave it to Carson. And so I was reminded, oh, yeah. (laughs) But you guys can't tell anybody because I'm a maintenance man. And if anybody finds out that I use instructions, I'm in trouble, right? I don't look at YouTube videos or read instructions, right? Yeah. Okay. Okay. But that's really, it, it really encompasses what I want to kind of cover today, and just the importance of the Word. We've been hearing, we've been learning a lot, a lot, a lot about the Word and about how it's structured and how beautiful it is, how important it is, how whole it is, right? How expansive it is, all those different things. And I want, this, this psalm really uh, brings that out to me. And I was actually a little shocked how little... Teaching there is on this Psalm, on Psalm 19. There's not lots and lots. I thought there would be quite a bit more, but there's obviously some good stuff out there. But this this beautiful song of David, I just want to bring to you guys because it has, especially with the big picture that we're getting from Guga, this Psalm has really uh, ignited in me a fire and a love for the Word, and I want to share that with you. That's all I'm trying to do this morning. Okay. We can go down verse through verse. I was up till one o'clock last night. Uh, The the scripture true, or one this morning, I guess. And the scripture truly is inexhaustible. I was, I kept going. Oh, I could talk about that, and I could talk about that, and I could, you know, in the last minute. And that's always not a great thing. But, but I did. There was more. There's more. There's more. There's more. And we're going to see that today. It's inexhaustible. It's amazing. It's beautiful. And it's the word of our Creator right? The reason why we're here, and we have an instruction book, right? And it tells us all about it. So we're going to take a look at it. We're going to look at Psalm 19. It's a Psalm of David. Um, uh, I think it's, hopefully that's it, just going to fan the flames. I've seen it through Guga's teaching. You guys are getting excited about the Word. You're seeing the Word in a new way, really, and how cohesive it is and all these different things. And I've seen the sparks, you know, the little... uh, Increase in love of the Word and and understanding the Word. And I just want to fan that. I just want to, to fan that and really produce a desire. One of the verses in here that we're going to read in verse 10, the desire for the Word of God. Okay? So would you stand with me? Let's read our passage this morning. I'm going to read, oh, another just note is I'm using the NASB 1995 edition, which is a little different than than what Google normally uses, the ESV. Okay, so slightly different, but um, uh, very good still. So this is Psalm 19. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the works of his hands. Day to day forth, pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone through all the earth. And their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from the one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, Acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I will be acquitted of great transgressions. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. He can have a seat. Oh, Lord, my rock and redeemer, I praise you for this day. I praise you for this moment. Lord, I praise you for your creation, for your creation of this body. And uh, Lord, I pray that uh, you would be uh, with us today, that we would hear from you, that we would have uh, the experience of being in your presence together as a family. And uh, we ask that you'd provide that for us today through your word. Show us wonderful things from your word. Your son's name. Amen. Amen. So, as I said, this is kind of a different sermon than we usually do. Um, We're going to be walking through this beautiful song written by King David uh, that's also placed in a book of musical poetic theology. Remember, Guga explained that to us, that it's theologically organized, right? It's a very important theological piece of the Bible and does happen to be poetry and songs and worship. And this is a worshipful song of praise. It's not a worship song. It's not a praise song. (laughs) This is a deep, theological, worshipful, praise song to God. And I think we're going to see that's what we really, really need to be doing, right? Looking at the Word, seeing, uh, bringing that out in our, our thoughts, our songs, and our daily life. But and I know for, for me and others here, Guga's overview of the Word and his other sermons have begun this work, like I said, and I want to keep fueling that. But we're also commanded, right? We're supposed to obey God's Word. Turn to Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. We turn it a lot again today. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Some of you probably have that one memorized. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That's what I'm seeking to do this morning, right? And that's what we should should be doing. And we're also here to worship. Right? Turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. And this is when Solomon is dedicating the temple. <laughs> Which is, we know from our studies, right? The presence of God. This is it. Solomon's dedicating the brand new shiny temple, Right? This is where the presence of the Lord is going to dwell forever, right? This is the culmination of the covenant, right? No, we now know no, But here's, that's what was going through their minds when he was setting this up and praying. And here's what he says. Now, when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. The priests could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. All the sons of Israel, seeing the fire, came down, come down, and the glory of the Lord upon the house bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshiped and gave praise to the Lord, saying, truly he is good, truly his loving kindness is everlasting. So hopefully the word produces that type of worship in us. Okay, So those are our, those are our goals for this morning. Obey and worship. So, here's our outline for this morning. Very simple. I'm not trying to be funny. It's it's a song, right? And there are three distinct verses to this song. And they're broken up by the verses, the, by the scriptural <laughs> verses, right? The canon verses. So we're going to go through it verse by verse. So, it's laid out that way clearly. Some people have thought it's even two songs because verses one through six and the rest kind of or feel kind of disjointed when you read through it. I don't know if you notice that. We're going to talk about that. I don't think that was David's intention. I think this is one psalm that David wrote, and I think he was giving us a very beautiful message with the beginning of that psalm. And hopefully we'll be able to, to tie that in. But so that's our outline. Super simple. We're going to look at the song, we're going to worship God. We're to learn more about him and hopefully love him more. Verses 1 through 6 says, or the first verse says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the works of his hands. Day to day pour forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard, their line has gone out through the earth, and their utterance is to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. It's rising from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. Amen. Verse 1. Verse 1 of verse 1 says what? The very first phrase in our song says, the heavens declare or the heavens are telling of the glory of, of God, and we just read about God's glory and what it looked like in the temple, right, with the fire and the smoke and the, the glory of the Lord and his presence. Well, this says here, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord, and I can tell by some of your faces, and that's the reason I have this tie, is because Abby knows me, and she's thoughtful, and she bought me this nice tie, but you guys are saying, here we go, Dan's going to talk about stars again, right? He's going to take us on a little universe thing, right, I roll, is that right? Is that right, Lucy? I have to ask. Lucy's the expert on so the IRL. Sorry. <laughs> Verse 101, one, heavens declare the glory of the Lord. Yes, I'm going to talk about stars, but I'm only going to talk about one. One other one than our sun. Our sun's a star, but it's only 93 million miles away. So if, if you know, yeah, 93 million, nothing. Because uh, the next closest star in our galaxy We talked about Wednesday night. I mentioned that if we traveled at our current fastest speeds that we have, uh, we could get to our next door neighbor in 8,000 years. So that's our next closest neighbor. All right. The sun is the closest 93. Outside our sun, our system's nearest neighbor is Alpha Centauri. This isn't a single star, it's actually a triple star system. Three stars bound together by gravity. I'm going to I'm gonna have to do this because you have to see this. I made this slide. This is a view of our Milky Way. And you can kind of see it there. But if you look up at the Milky Way and you can pick out... Oh, this is cool too. We don't use this very often. but ah. Let's see this right here. This little dull thing. If you look up in the Milky Way, this is the Milky Way right here. Right? And there's these two stars, Alpha Centauri. And these two are this little thing right here, and then this is uh, the next one that we're going to talk about. That's actually the closest one because it orbits this star orbits these two stars. So I'll let you take a look at that while I read about it here for just a minute. Uh, <coughs> Alpha Centauri A and B are two bright, closely orbiting stars with a, dis, uh, with a distant, dimmed companion named Proxima Centauri. The inner binary appears to the unaided eye as a single star, the third brightest in the night sky. But it lies 4.37 light years from the sun, from our sun. It's actually faint Proxima Centauri that claims the honor of being our true nearest stellar neighbor at only 4.24 light years away. A (laughs) mere. It's difficult to conceptualize such vast distances. But a popular analogy sets the sun as the size of a grapefruit. Okay, so if I had a softball, right? About three or four inch sphere. If that was our sun. It was that big. And that Centauri, the binary system is about the same size as that. So you have another three or four inch ball. How far apart do you think they'd be if, that's, if that represented their size? How far? If you lined up One after the other, how far would it be? Any guesses? Huh? Not quite. 2,500 miles to our nearest neighbor. By the way, if the Earth was, I mean, if that was, the Sun was the size of a softball, you couldn't see the Earth without a microscope. (laughs) That's our closest star, okay? So there are innumerable stars that I could have chosen to talk about. we see in that picture right there. Just in our galaxy, there's hundreds of millions of stars just in the Milky Way galaxy. And then we know that there are hundreds of millions of galaxies because of the Hubble telescope. And have you guys, anybody heard of the James Webb telescope that is now in orbit? And it's, a mil- it's orbiting the Earth and the moon at a million miles. The Earth is 250,000 miles away. It's orbiting the earth. And then the James Webb telescope is a million miles away, orbiting both. And they're zeroing it in. And it's going to be able to see way, way farther, way, way clearer than Hubble. And they're thinking, their goal is to look back and figure the universe is about 15 billion years old. And they'll be able to look back further than 15 billion light years. So they think they're going to see the beginning of the world. That's what they think. I know they're not. You know they're not. But what I'm excited, I'm super excited to see what they find, because whatever they find is true, right? Whatever they find is true. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. And they're going to switch it around, and they'll come up with something. They'll add more time. They'll add more, you know, possibilities, more universes, whatever. They'll keep adding. But we have right here this wonderful, wonderful passage um, that that explains to us that all of this. If we look at the heavens, and consider them at all, and consider who made them, it's incredible. It's incredible. So there are innumerable ones I could have talked about, as there are innumerable grains of sand on the earth. Have you ever heard that? Genesis chapter twenty-two. Let's look at Genesis chapter twenty-two real quick. Genesis chapter twenty-two, verse seventeen says, "This is our covenant, right? back of the Abrahamic covenant. And God is speaking to Abram, Abraham. And he says, "Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed." We talked about that theme throughout the scriptures. I will multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess." the gate of their enemy. So God makes that, and we think, oh, that's neat. He means a lot, a lot, a lot, right? A lot. So we talked about there's trillions of stars in our galaxy, there's trillions of galaxies, and uh, American astronomers, passed away now, Carl Sagan, you guys remember him? Billions and billions of years ago. All right, Carl Sagan said this. There are more stars, he figured this out on his own. There are more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand in all the beaches of the earth, The question left people surprised at how big the universe is, considering that the sand along the Earth's coastline amounts to trillions of metric tons. There is no definitive way to determine the exact number of stars in the universe and the number of grains of sand along the shores, but mathematical estimations can be made. And if you want to, go ahead. That's a Metric ton, metric ton is, equals about 15 and a half million grains of sand. So, 15 and a half million grains of sand in a metric ton, and a metric ton is about a cubic yard, which is smaller than this pulpit, about like that maybe, is a cubic yard, right? So, a cubic yard of sand, 15 million and a half stars times however many metric tons there are on the beaches of all the world. <laughs> Got it? <laughs> That's a lot of zeros. That's more zeros than our government can spend, even. Right? Maybe. Maybe not. We'll see. We're going to see. right? <laughs> so it's big. The universe is big. We cannot, you cannot comprehend it. You cannot comprehend it. But, you can think about it. <laughs> You can think about it. So one more star thing here. Turn to Job, chapter 38. If you need, if you're wanting to be humble, like brother Brian was talking about, if you want to be humble, duh, go to Job. Start in chapter 38 and just start reading. That's where God is talking to Job and explaining to him who God is and who Job is, right? And Job's got some legitimate questions, right? Like, why, why me? What's this? What's going on here? And uh, the Lord answers Job out of the whirlwind, right? Starting in verse uh chapter thirty-eight. But if we go to um, verse thirty-one, this is super interesting. It says, "Can you bind?" This is God talking to uh, Job, and we need to remember uh, context. Remember, we're talking about context. This this book was most likely written before Moses, right? This is. Probably or is the, the oldest manuscript in the Bible. Okay? So look what this says here. Can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the forth constellation in its season and guide the bear with her satellites? Do you know the ordinances of heaven or fix their rule over the earth? And then look at, back up a little bit to verse 19. Where is the way and the dwelling of light and darkness? Where is its place that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the path to its home? You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Well, that's pretty sarcastic, right? But think about the people that say billions and billions and billions of years, right? Right? You know, you were there. You were born then, right? Fifteen billion years ago? Hmm. Right. But these constellations that he's talking about in this very ancient manuscript, listen to what this says here. And this is, this is God's word, God talking to him about Pleiades and Orion and, and the bear, right? So here's what they are. Ursula, <coughs> Ursula Major, also called the Great Bear, is a constellation of the northern sky. It's Big Dipper. You guys know the Big Dipper, right? When you look north, it circles around the North Star. It was referred to in the Old Testament, we just read, and mentioned by Homer in the Iliad. The Greeks identified this constellation with the nymph Callisto, who was placed in the heavens by Zeus in the form of a bear, together with her sons Arcus the bear keeper and Arcturus. The Greek named the constellation Arctos, the she-bear, or Hellas, which is where we get the word helicopter, it's around, because it turns around Polaris, the North Star, so It looks like it's going around in a circle when you look at it. The Romans knew the constellation as Arctos or Ursa. Ptolemy, this is a couple hundred years after that, uh, catalogued eight of the constellation stars. Of these, the seven brightest constitute one of the most characteristic figures in the north sky. The group has received various names, the wagon, the plow, the big dipper, Charles Vane. For the Hindus, uh, seven stars represented the seven rishis or sages, right? That should lead us to... Romans 1. Turn to Romans chapter 1. These constellations that God put in the sky, he's asking Job about, where did you do with them? You know, when did you put them in the sky? And we think we know. We think we know about stuff. We look and we think we know. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's, we could say, suppress the truth is the word of God, right? Or Christ. So the ones who suppress this book of truth and Christ's message is unrighteousness because... That which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what was made, so that they are without excuse. Right? So all of this, these stories that are made up about the stars and the different ways they got there and the different all the mythology is exactly what it is. it's mythology. But we have God's Word. God was there at the beginning, right? What about John chapter 1? John chapter 1. Very first verses of John chapter 1. In the beginning. It's the very first words of the Bible, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. All this stuff starts to make sense, doesn't it? When you start looking at what the Bible says about it. (laughs) For millennia, people have been looking to the heavens and making up a God. Because they didn't have the word of God. okay? The instruction book. <laughs> right? They didn't have the instructions. We have it. We avoid it. right? We try and do everything we can to suppress it. That's what we were reading in Romans, right? It's suppressed. We have to suppress the truth. Surely God didn't say that. That sound familiar? From Eve, the serpent to Eve. We need God's word. So I'm going to end this in this section here. Y'all got that math problem down, right? You know, figure it out. I want to end with this quote from Matthew Henry on these things, on this first verse. There are uh, the created thing. He's talking about created things here. Everything created, the stars. He's particularly talking about this passage, but really any created thing, okay? There are many ways. They are in many ways useful and serviceable to us, in nothing so much as in this, that they declare the glory of God. So all the things we use, everything we use them for, the most important feature of those things is that they show God, right? Our DNA, plants, the water cycle, stars, whatever it is, every created thing shows the glory of God. And we use them, and we get to live in this wonderful, amazing, beautiful world. But the most important thing is that they speak to his handiworks they plainly speak themselves to be God's handiworks for they could not exist from eternity all succession all succession in motion must have had a beginning they could not make themselves that's a contradiction they could not be produced by a casual hit of atoms that's an absurdity Fit rather to where the atoms come from, right? A whole kind of questions there, but anyway, fit rather to be bantered than reasoned with. I like that. How long have we as a church been reasoning, right? What good does it do? The word of God is here. This is what the word of God says. God created the world in six days, right? We have it. They could not be produced by a casual hit of ab- atoms, that's an absurdity, fit rather to be bantered than reasoned with. Therefore, they must have a creator who can be no other than an eternal mind, infinitely wise, powerful, and good. They declare his glory. From the excellency of his work, we may easily infer the infinite perfection of its great author. From the brightness of the heavens, we may collect that the creator is light. Their vastness of extent bespeaks his immensity, their height his transcendency and sovereignty, their influence upon earth his dominion and providence, and universal beneficence, and all declare his almighty power, by which they were first made and continue to this day according to the ordinances that that they were settled. Where did uh, Brother Matthew get these ideas? Where did he get these ideas that he's talking about? That it can't be. It can't be that. It can't be this. It has to be this. It has to be a Creator. He's getting those ideas from the book, <laughs> from the Bible, from the Word of God. Uh, I'm not even gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna skip talking about the the second part of this first, where it talks about the Son and the Bridegroom coming out and how how that should remind us of Christ, right? Two, the bridegroom in Revelation 19 and 20 and 21 should remind us of that. And it should take us to where, in the end, every knee is going to bow and every tongue confess. It says here, the sun comes up and nothing on the entire sphere of the earth is hidden from its heat. It's the same with Christ. Christ, the bridegroom, coming out of his chambers in his glory when he returns in the second advent Everyone will be able to see him. No one be able to hide from the heat of his judgment on the face of the earth. So there's these beautiful, this is the song, the beautiful imagery of the song, right, that should be taking our brain to different places in the Bible, especially now that we have this big overview of the scriptures and we can, we can think about, look about what, what he's really talking about. Matter of fact, if we look, turn to Genesis chapter 1. Really quickly, I'm going to go to the next slide. is our... Uh, Next outline, but first before we go there, turn to uh, Genesis chapter 1 and just sit there for a second. Uh, Because Genesis chapter 1, 1 through 6. Now that we've read that first song, the first verse of the song of Psalm 19. See if any of these words sound familiar and see if the order even looks familiar. I didn't do like Guga where he does the the parallel passages and he shows on the charts. I could probably do that with this because it talks about the heavens declare the glory of the Lord, right? And then it talks about the expanse. But listen to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. That's an important verb. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And that's where I talked about where he created... Space. God had to create the expanse to create space to put things in, right? You don't even think like that, do we? You can create stuff, but you have to have a place to put stuff. (laughs) A space to put stuff, right? So the expanse. Anyway, 1 through 6 is pointing us, I think, directly back to this. And if you read them side by side, if you read the first six verses of Psalm 19, you read the first six verses of Genesis, you'll definitely see the... The parallels there, but I think what he's doing is pointing us back to this because the very next word right here on this verses seven through ten says the law of the Lord is perfect. That word, the law of the Lord, that word is Torah. So he goes he goes through these six verses of the heavens and the sun and the beauty of creation, and then verse seven starts Torah. What's the first six verses of Torah? What are the six? We've learned, right? The Torah is the, right? First part of the Tanakh. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right? So when he says Torah here, you could think, what's the first six verses of the Torah? We just read them. They're almost exactly what he has just laid out here in song, right? He's... He's changed it to a poetic version, but it's basically the first six verses of Genesis. So I think think David is pointing us here to the Word of God, saying the Word of God explains everything. The reason that that Matthew Henry looks at it this way and the reason that Spurgeon, we're going to see, looks at it this way and we look at it this way is because we have the Word of God. If we don't or we suppress it, we end up, Making things up. Zeus grabbed, you know, changed the, his maid into a bear, and then her son, who was going to shoot her, and took him up into space by their tails. and That's why their tails are so long. You know, you make up stories. And every culture for, throughout history has done that. Only recently, only recently have we said there is no God. Really. Right? Because all these people are making up some God... There's something out there bigger, more powerful, creative than me. Right? We can just look around and see that. But only recently we've started with the no God. And that's, a, that's another big step. You know, we, we have atheism, right, is a, is a fairly new concept, really. 150, 200 years. And, it's, and especially the way it is now, the way it's being talked about now. So, Anyway. But we have the book, we have the truth, and I believe that he's pointing it to us. I think it's a clever way of him taking this beautiful song, and then we say Torah, and it's not a shift, it's not a a gear change, it's like, oh yeah. Torah. It's beautiful. It shows us everything. Right from the beginning. Right? It shows let's read let's read seven through nine here. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. is the one that I'm really trying today to impress upon you guys. If you want to circle that one, mark that one, memorize that one, and bring it to mind because that's the key. That's what I'm trying to do this morning is bring the way he's written this psalm to look at the entire Word of God, the way we've been looking at the Word of God, and to love, love, love it because of who it's from. It's the one I've been praying about that would be applied to this body of believers. And I've already seen that. I've seen a craving for the Word just as a newborn, which is part of the fun of having the newborns in here, is that we can see newborns that have to eat now, right? (laughs) In the middle of service, right? Are you that way? In the middle of work? Do you have to look at the Bible right now? (laughs) Right? Gold and money... Isn't one uh, isn't worth much these days? Not what it was worth just a few years ago, really, right? So money's not as shiny and uh, worth as much as it was. And to lose money and gold will be gone someday. And sweets in our culture, sweets aren't really a treat anymore, right? <laughs> like this back, <clears throat> honey was a special extra treat. You know, they couldn't go to the superstore or you know the Costco and buy twenty-five different gallons of honey or whatever. So this these things to us don't really get across the preciousness of the Word of God to us. Even, even when we say gold, much fine gold. Okay, yeah. That's great. But we don't get it. And sweet. It's sweeter than honey. Sweeter than a bowl. It's better than a bowl of ice cream, right? Yeah, those are understatements big time. Okay? In fact, let's try, let's try a little experiment here. This is just a little thought experiment, heart check. You know, I do like to do these little heart check things, okay? So imagine, most people in here probably have a, a phone and a Bible with them, right? You got a phone and a Bible? If you were to take your phone in one hand and your Bible in the other hand, and I'm going to come around and take one. Okay? I'm gonna come around and take one. Which one are you gonna to hand to me right off the bat? Don't tell me. It's a heart check. Think in your heart. What would you do if I came by and took every one of your phones and hucked them in the dumpster and left you your Bibles? Heart check, right? <laughs> I don't know what's going on in your head or your heart. You do, and Christ does, right? And that's not our only that's not our only thing, right? <laughs> we got lots of things. We make, our, our our hearts are idol factories, right? has been said, and we can create them fast. Our families, our church, our sound. <laughs> we can make my idols of anything. But, <clears throat> here, let's look at Matthew Henry again. Matthew Henry talking about David here. See how highly he prized the commandments of God. It is the character of all good people that they prefer their religion and the word of God far before all the wealth of the world. It is more desirable than gold, than fine gold, than much fine gold. Gold is of the earth, earthly, but grace is the image of the heavenly. Gold is only for the body and the concerns of time. But grace is for the soul of the concerns of eternity. Far before all pleasures and delights of sense. And read that again. Far before all pleasures and delights of sense. The word of God received by faith is sweet to the soul. Sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. The pleasures of sense are the delights of brutes. And therefore debase the great soul of man. The pleasures of religion are the delight of angels and exalt the soul. The pleasures of sense are deceitful, will soon surfeit, and yet never satisfy. But those of religion are substantial and satisfying, and there is no danger in exceeding in them. We must desire more. And an interesting little side, remember I said I had all these things, I could talk about that, I could talk about that. Just a little side note here the word desirable here, where it says they are more desirable than gold. The only time that word, in the NAS anyway, the only time that word is translated that way in the English is uh, Genesis chapter 3. The woman saw that the tree was desirable. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> So this is like original sin level desire, right? That we need to be having for the Word of God. Okay? And it is more desirable than knowing everything like Eve wanted to do, right? Be like God. It's more desirable than all the money in the world, ask Solomon. It's more than all the wisdom in the world, ask Solomon, right? We need to desire it. It needs to be it needs to be our life. Like if I that little that little thought that you had, if I came and took your phone, do we have that? If I took your Bible, all the Bibles you have on your shelf, can't look at it, can't look it up on your phone, don't try that. (laughs) I mean if I could take the word of God from you. Can't. Especially if you hide it in your heart, and we're gonna hear about that too. (laughs) But heart check. All right, Spurgeon too. Charles Spurgeon here. There are some persons who talk as if they know the whole circle of divine truth. They think they have put a great ocean of revelation into the small measure of their mental capacity. But you know, dear friends, that's not so. No man will ever be able to hold the heavens in his hand or to compass the firmament with a span. But even could he do this he would still find that the Word of God in all its wondrous immensity was too vast for him to grasp. You understand that? If we could go to the next closest star, even, we can't. Can't even go to Mars, right? Haven't been to the moon in however many years, 60, 60, my, you know, my life, well, 50. Yeah, my lifetime. I was a baby. (laughs) It's a long time ago, but... Anyway, but even if we could, if we could go to the next galaxy, the Andromeda galaxy, I didn't even talk about how far that one is. But if we could, we'd find out the Word of God is deeper. The Word of God is more expansive. The Word of God is more precious than all of it. We must hold firmly whatever we have learned of the truth of God, but we must always be prepared to learn more. To say of my Bible that I have attained to every height that it reveals is as foolish as to say that I have reached the highest degree of spiritual life that is possible. And we know that's impossible. (coughs) Spurgeon um, has Yeah. Yeah. We need to always be prepared to learn more. Oh, and I was going to say, Spurgeon used to, it's said that he used to, he's talking about desiring it more, desiring it more. He used to read through the Bible twice a year and Pilgrim's Progress once a year, too. So he desired it. (laughs) He was in it a lot. We've got our last slide, last verse here. This tells us, this last verse tells us, that middle tells us how precious it is. It gives us the six sided um, view, the faceted, beautiful faceted view of the Word of God. Um, and then this last section moves on to telling us why and how to use it, right? And how it's important and why it's important. Uh, starting verse 11 says, Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors, right? Without the word of God, you can't. Acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgressions. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We can see here that without the word of God... We don't even know what creation is for or what it does or who made it or why, right? And we don't know anything about ourselves or why we're here or what's happening. But we have over the last number of months here seeing this beautiful, amazing book that God has given us and how perfectly said it is, how beautiful. This that I'm reading this morning was written by God through David. When I said David was trying to point us back, maybe God was trying to point us back and say, the law that I gave you, that I gave Moses, you remember that? Look at the first six verses. It tells you what's going on in the stars and who made the stars. I was there. You weren't there, like he says to Job, right? So this continues that as uh, showing us that who we are. We're sinful. We cannot be in God's presence, right? as we've been seeing throughout the, the thing, without Christ. We've got to have it. Last couple quotes here. See H. Spurgeon again. With this blessed book in our hands, and especially if its truths are enshrined in our hearts, that's a key, key per- portion, right? We talked about that, that we can uh, have it and know it, but if the truths are not enshrined in our hearts, it's pretty useless, right? But with those two things, we may confidently face the future and not be alarmed by any of the errors and heresies that may spring up around us. The teachers of falsehood are only imitating the folly of the builders of Babel. (laughs) And it's happened, remember? Adam and Eve, and then Noah, and it just keeps happening that way over and over again, right? And he mentions Babel here. It's the same folly. What's happening right now in the news, in the world, it's the same folly as this because they're not following the word of God. The teachers of falsehood are only imitating the folly of the builders of Babel. And all their inventions will but end in their own confusion. The sun has gone down and in an hour or two the world will appear in a more somber dress than it now wears. If you come out at midnight, you will see nothing but the twinkling stars and a few glimmering lamps. Yet the sun is not put out. His light is not quenched. Wait till the appointed time and the great light of day shall again be as a bridegroom coming out of his chambers and rejoiceth as a strong man to run the race. And he continues. Whoops. Oh yeah, that's it. Darkness. Yeah, here you go. Darkness may be... This is a continuation of the same quote. Darkness may be covering your mind tonight. Darkness may be covering your circumstances. Darkness may, for a while, cover even the church of God on earth. But that old promise, which is a covenant, right? That covenant is still true. Unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healings in his wings. Malachi, that's from Malachi four too. Only be sure that you are on the Lord's side. Put your trust in the precious blood of Jesus and wait for him. More than they that watch for the morning, and then when he comes, it will be to you a day of light and not of darkness. This is what I was talking about here when it talks about the sun and the bridegroom coming out. This is the kind of imagery we're going to see, right? Put your trust in the precious blood of Jesus Christ, and wait for him more than they that watch for the morning. And then, when he comes, it will be to you a day of light and not of darkness. And the days of your morning will have ended forever. So may the Lord comfort your hearts, sustain you under every trial, keep you in his love, and enable you patiently to wait for his coming, for his dear name's sake. Amen. <clears throat> this idea of the word uh, to the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart that they would be acceptable to Christ how do we do that? how do you do that? do you just think what you want to what you think he might want to hear or do you listen to what he says and repeat it right? that's how it'll be acceptable in his sight our Lord, our Rock, and our Redeemer. And David ends the psalm with the word Redeemer. People were thinking maybe he was the Redeemer, right? When he cut Goliath's head off. He's not. He's talking to Yahweh, his Redeemer, right? He knows that one of his seed is going to come because of this book, because of the covenant that God made with him. He knows that it's going to come to completion. <clears throat> This book right here, highly recommend knowing God, and also uh, knowledge of the the Holy by um, Pink A. W. Pink. But I'm going to close with this quote from this is J. I. Packer writing, but he's quoting someone else. So I'll let you. On January 7th, 1855, the minister of New Park Street Chapel, Southwark, England, opened his morning sermon as follows. If you don't know who that is, you'll find out here in a second. Uh, the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings and existence of the great God whom he calls Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinite infinity. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead and the glorious Trinity. Cru- uh, and him crucified, and the knowledge of the... Oh, (laughs) nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of deity. And whilst humbling and expanding, the subject is eminently consolatory. Oh, there is, in contemplating Christ, a balm for every wound, in musing on the Father, there is quietus for every grief, and in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balm for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated, I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, as to speak peace to the winds of trial, as a devout, uh, as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. It is to that subject that I invite you this morning. These words, spoken over a century ago by C.H. Spurgeon, at the time, incredibly, only 21 years old, were true then and they are true now. They make a fitting preface to a series of study in the nature of God. So anyway, the very, very beginning of this book, he's quoting Spurgeon and how important the word of God is and how desirable it should be. And I can confess to you guys, and I know you have seen it and understand it as well, that um, when you go to the Word, I was pushed into the Word to study this. and, And when I went to this passage, and like I said, every night I was looking, and every night something, wow, wow, incredible. And I can take you a hundred different directions. And really, that's what I want, is you to desire it so much. Maybe you'll go home and read it. Maybe you'll pick up Psalm 19 and start following and take your own trails and dive deeper and dig deeper. And we, my landscaping buddies will appreciate this. It's my old pastor friend used to say that uh, uh, it's the difference between, like, raking the leaves and getting the backhoe, right? That's the difference. We need to be, you get diamonds when you dig with a backhoe, right? You're not going to get diamonds raking the surface, okay? So please, dive into it. You will not exhaust it, and you will not be disappointed. That's all lies from Satan, from the beginning of the book. We know he's going to do it. We know he's going to say, surely God didn't say, right? We go to Matthew 4 and the temptation of Christ. We've talked about that. And we talked about the Holy Spirit and what it means to be in the Spirit when Christ was led up to the wilderness by the Spirit. Right? And he was, in Matthew 4, he was tempted by Satan face to face and he said every time, you remember what he said? What was his answer? Three times, three answers. What was it? It is written. So, in the Spirit, 40 days of fasting, so his body was in bad shape, his human body. But, he answered with his rima, his sword of the Spirit. Their only offensive weapon, right? Out of the armor of God, you have one offensive weapon, and that's the sword, the Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we confess that we don't love your word enough, Lord. We love you. We say we love you. Uh, we know that you've chosen us, we know that you've adopted us, but we're petulant children, Lord. We we want to do things our own way. We want to have our own kingdoms. We want to have our own glories. But Lord, it's all yours. Every strength we have, every breath, every gift, it's all yours. Lord, and we pray that you would um, be able to <clears throat> give us Just a complete joy, a complete love, a complete desire to be with you and to be in your presence. Lord, that's what you desired for us. That's why you created us. That's why you created this. That's why you created your word and the plan of redemption uh, in yourself from all eternity. So, Lord, we'll just continue to praise you and continue to learn about it forever and ever and ever. And, Lord, I can't wait to see all the rest of the stars.